0: Hey guys, you're listening to episode 86 of the Finish Line podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. My name is Cody, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Keelan. Today, we're talking to David Wills, President Emeritus of the National Christian Foundation and co-founder of Generous Giving. He is also on the board of the Impact Foundation, which facilitates impact investing with charitable dollars. David has had a front row seat to the explosion of the generosity movement over the past 25 years and his passion for generosity and the Great Commission is contagious. You won't want to miss this one. Before we get started, I wanted to mention the Finish Line Sprint Program. The Sprint Program is designed for small groups or individuals to explore what the Bible says about wealth and money, and it provides all the tools to set your own financial finish line. The Sprint Guide is completely free and available on our website at finishlinepledge.com sprint. Now, let's get to the interview. All right, we're here today with David Wills. Thank you so much for spending some time with us, David, to just tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, it's an honor. Thanks for inviting me. Can you get us started by just giving us a little bit of context on your background, maybe your upbringing, your faith background? Sure. I won the
1: parent lottery. I have the most amazing parents that you could ever ask for. Grew up in a small town, a place called Wichita Falls, Texas, which is great. Kind of go out in the middle of nowhere, and you keep going, and then you'll find Wichita Falls. And I guess from a spiritual standpoint, ooh, this could get emotional. Uh, when I was 10 years old, uh, my parents put the kids in their Buick station wagon, and we drove to Dallas, Texas. And uh, I remember we picked up my grandfather, and I think we dropped off some of my siblings because they were younger. And we headed to Texas Stadium for the first event ever held in Texas Stadium, and it was The headliner from my parents' perspective was a guy named Johnny Cash. But he was the opening act for a guy named Billy Graham. And uh, it was the first event. And uh, I can tell you, I mean, I'm getting older. I'm I'm in my 60s, so things are getting fuzzier. But this day, this night is unforgettable. He preached on Jonah. I was paying attention to the whole thing. And when he gave the invitation to go forward, I just got straight up out of my seat and started walking down to the floor of the stadium. And, uh... Yeah. Seared in my brain. I think my mom got scared, so she ran after me. I don't even think I said anything to my parents. I just got up and started going. (laughs) And uh, that night, interesting enough, my mom really, I don't know if she came to faith that night or she rededicated herself that night, but that was a transformational night for her as well, which is very special. I remember getting the book of John in the mail from the Billy Graham people and for the first time reading God's Word as a 10-year-old. I can remember that little booklet had questions, fill in the blanks, and that's the beginning of my faith journey. There's a lot of milestones. I don't have time to go through uh, all of them, but God has had his hand on my life and has always surrounded me with people because I would have gone off the deep end for sure on multiple occasions if he hadn't done that. So he protected me. Certainly a faith milestone was marrying my wife. We actually grew up in the same neighborhood in Wichita Falls. She was my youngest sister's best friend growing up. So I met my wife when she was five years old in kindergarten. And I was probably 10 years old at the time. And uh, she says I was a bully. I don't really believe that, (laughs) but uh, that's what she says. And uh, interestingly enough, we, uh, you know, she was so much younger than I was when I went off to college. You know, she was probably going, becoming a freshman in high school. And we reunited after we both graduated. I finished law school and she finished her studies at OU, and we moved to Dallas, Texas, unknown to each other, and we're living four doors down from each other. And we were discipling kids with a ministry called K-Life. Sorry. She had the sixth-grade girls, and I had the sixth-grade boys. And that's how we got reconnected, was discipling kids. It's a great way to meet a spouse, by the way. I wish that she was on this with me. I mean, I married a what I would describe as a generous minimalist And she married a stingy hoarder, so we are very different. I mean, the good news is I'm a penny pincher, so I'm always looking for a deal for things I don't need. But um, if you guys want to come visit us here, we live outside of Waco, Texas. I I kid you not, if you come into our house and you see something you like and you want, you will leave with it. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be our TV. It could be our dining room table. Uh, Seriously, we have given away both. And actually, I shouldn't say we, she has given away both, (laughs) and many other things as well. And so she, I'm not sure how I complete her, but I know she completes me. And so she's a big milestone. We have seven kids, which is another faith milestone in our lives, six boys and a girl. And uh, now we have two daughters-in-law. So now our daughter has two sisters which is just wonderful because she had to put up with six brothers her whole <laughs> life. And now, just in the last year, baby Max has come into our lives, and so we are grandparents, which has changed everything.
2: Congratulations!
1: So that's, I guess, kind of a family faith journey. Those two things are completely intertwined.
2: So, Yeah, absolutely. Now, I know you have spent a lot of time with the National Christian Foundation over the years, bring us forward a little bit to how you got involved with NCF and then what some of your time looked like there. Yeah, I may have to go a little bit further back
1: in time because the dominoes that fell wouldn't have happened had it been for some other things. And so, um, you know, I went to Baylor University, got a business and a law degree there and went to Dallas to practice law as a litigator. I I love being in the courtroom probably too much. It was quite the ego thing and it was a problem for me, frankly. And Probably about four or five years into it, through some mutual relationships, I met a guy named Greg Sperry, who was coming into Dallas. He lived near Chicago. You might have crossed paths with Greg at some point. I don't know, maybe. Anyway, he was in Dallas, and I had lunch with him, and he told me his story. And he was a former litigator, and had changed his practice, really, to a tax practice, trust and estate tax practice, and was working with high-net-worth Christian families, which I thought was very nice, but I would never do anything like that. And needless to say, I wrestled with God for a year. And um, long story short, about a year and a half after I met him, my wife and I, pregnant with our first child, moved to Georgia to start a foundation that was just like the National Christian Foundation. We did not know NCF existed, even though it was just up the road in Georgia from us. And about uh, three, three, four years into it, we went to an event and sat next to a guy named Terry Parker. And it was an event put on by a guy named Dave Worland, who became a really important part of the story. So fast forward about four years later, Terry asked me if I will come and work with him at NCF. Of course, the caveat was there was only one other full-time employee, and she worked out of her house in Lawrenceville, Georgia, in her dining room with banker's boxes. And there were three part-time ladies that did our grant making and used those giant Rolodexes. You probably haven't even ever seen a giant (laughs) Rolodex before. That's how we managed the grants. So I really went to work for these four ladies is really what Terry got me into. And so I was the first receptionist at the <laughs> uni- at the National Christian Foundation and kind of worked my way up from there. But I told Terry that I'd come and help him if I could bring Greg with me. And about, gosh, not many months later, I went to Terry and said, I want to bring Dave Worland in, too, because we came to the conclusion that uh, Dave was the first president of a local Christian community foundation in the country in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And we decided that strategically it would be wise for us to help start local Christian community foundations around the country. So we brought Dave in to do that. So that's how I found my way to NCF.
0: Well, David, we've heard from several employees of NCF over the course of this podcast but I'm curious to hear how things progressed from those early days to where NCF is today.
1: Yeah, I guess it's it's also important to understand where it started. And so NCF was actually founded back in 1982. I mentioned Terry Parker's name and Terry's really the founder. Even though we say we have three founders, Terry's really the founder. He is the embodiment of a founder. Even though he was a lawyer in Atlanta, he He really, I mean, he is a lawyer. He's a lawyer's lawyer, but he's also a a visionary, frankly. And uh, he had two clients who he had just helped form their organizations. One was a guy named Larry Burkett, and the other was a guy named Ron Blue. And uh, Terry thought, you know, someday people might know who these guys are. (laughs) And so he thought, I think I'll ask these guys to come on the board of this thing. I think we need to start. Terry had a client that needed a donor advised fund and didn't need a private foundation. That's really why he started it. But Terry could see around corners. He really could. So that's how it got started. It's an incredible story. And uh, last year, we granted out $2.2 billion out of the National Christian Foundation. Wow. And we've, we've probably granted out, I bet we're over $18 billion total at this point. It's, cr- it's just jaw-dropping. Those first fifteen years it was less than fifty million dollars was granted out in fifteen years. And the next twenty-five, it's now over eighteen billion. So God decided that he wanted to do something. And our job was not to screw it up. I'm not sure what, what could have happened, but he you know, his his hand was on it. This year another big milestone's happening, uh I just learned this past week that we're going. To, one of the things that NCF does is somewhat unique is we take in a lot of complex assets. So, not like stock and cash. And so, we do take a lot of that in. But this year, we will, for the first time, have over a billion dollars worth of complex assets contributed to NCF. And it's going to be well over a billion because I think we may hit a billion in the next couple of weeks. And we're having this podcast in October. And so, yeah, God's still continuing. Uh, to uh, to to bless the work of the hands of the folks that are serving at NCF. Now there's probably over 300 people that work at NCF, so the gatherings are a little bit different than they were when
2: <laughs> when, when me and the four ladies got together in the office. So. <laughs> yeah, and I mean over the course of the podcast, as far as we've come so far. NCF has come up over and over and over as such an integral part of the, really the whole generosity movement. Now, I know at least one component of the core of NCF is the donor-advised fund, and we've talked about donor-advised funds before, but maybe you can just break down how a donor-advised fund works and why it's advantageous. Sure.
1: A donor-advised fund is, is a tool. There are lots of tools that people use to help them be generous. It's kind of like a charitable checking account, and so it's very easy to use. I mean, I don't know if you guys use Donor Advice Fund, but I guess the easiest way for me to answer that question is to tell you my own personal experience, my wife and I. So before we were at NCF, we opened a Donor Advice Fund with NCF, and really there were several reasons why we did it that will kind of give you an idea of why Donor Advice Fund is such a great tool. The first one was when we graduated from college slash law school, we had lots of friends that went into the ministry. And as we got into a ministry, Discipling Kids, we just met more and more people. So we were given, you know, all those monthly checks to, I don't, there's no telling how many people we were given monthly checks to. And i am we would have a pile of receipts that was, it could have been an inch thick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was a nightmare. I'm a tax lawyer now, and I, I couldn't handle it all. It was too much for me. <laughs> so we, we opened up a giving fund with NCF, and we literally went to one receipt. And then we started using it to automatically contribute. We don't, even, we don't even write a check anymore into the fund. It just automatically takes money out of our bank account. And it keeps a record of all the organizations that we give to, and a lot of them we set on automatic as well. But we do click and give a lot, so that's, that's one reason. Um, we also love to give anonymously, and that's something that's somewhat unique into the donor-advised fund world. We don't always give anonymously, but when it's wise to do so, we do, and we, we do it pretty often. And uh, that's another thing. We also were one of the early givers of a complex gift, NCF. Probably the first year we were with NCF, we owned a part of an office building in St. Simons Island where we had lived. It had appreciated significantly, and the taxes were going to be ridiculous. And so we gave it away to NCF, a fractional interest in this office building, and NCF sold it. And put the money in our giving fund, and it took us a couple of years to give all that away because it was way beyond our normal giving pattern at that point. So that's an advantage to NCF. And another thing is you can give those types of assets, and you can give one asset and then grant it out to 20 different places if you want, which is another powerful concept. And it's a public charity, so it's the most tax-advantaged way to give, which really makes it the least expensive way. So it it costs less to give a dollar to a public charity than it would if we'd set up a private foundation. You know, one of the realities is with regards to giving that complex asset, you may not realize, but our government has about a $5.5 trillion budget every year. So it takes about one second to spend $168,000. Wow. And our, our tax obligation, had we sold that asset, and then, given the proceeds, would have taken about one tenth of one second, and it would have been gone. And we probably owned that asset for four or five years. So it just—that's just one of the ways that a donor advised fund and NCFs, donor advised funds, can help.
0: Yeah, it's really helpful to give a personal example. I think we've we've heard about donor advised funds several times, but I know when I opened one up myself, I started to really understand the value that it brings to to me personally. I want to shift gears a little bit here and talk about generous giving. We've had Todd Harper and April Chapman to share their experiences, but we'd love to hear uh, about your involvement with generous giving. Well, it's just another way that God's
1: hand has been, you know, in this whole movement. And Todd and I were a part of a group of guys that kind of got the thing kicked off. I guess it's been 20 years, maybe longer. I don't know. Well, there was a group of guys that uh, we all intersected in different ways and interacting with folks that were entrusted with much and were trying to be good stewards. And uh, we got together several times and processed not only the folks that we were working with but, frankly, for ourselves. Because it was a little – it was interesting, you know, especially for me. I won't speak for the other three guys, but I know them well enough to know it's true about them too. So I needed generous giving because I'm not a naturally generous person. In fact, I am a naturally greedy person, frankly. My wife is not like that as I mentioned, but I am like that and so we're getting together talking about this and we kind of came up with a framework of three questions that folks ask and answer in their lives, you know, in their journeys of generosity. Why should I be generous? How do I do that and where should I give? And we looked at that first question, which is the most important question. It's the transformational heart question, why? And our conclusion was that the, the local church was not doing a really great job answering that question. So we, we thought we should give it a shot. And uh, there were lots of fits and starts in the early years. Daryl Heald is one of the other guys. Todd, obviously, and a guy named Forrest Runner. We were, the I guess, the four primary folks. But uh, Daryl was working at the McClellan Foundation, and they said they'd bankroll it uh, so that we were never asking anybody for money. And uh, so Daryl volunteered. I think we all stepped back and Daryl forgot to. So he was the guy that was standing in front (laughs) and said, I'll lead it. So uh, Daryl took it on first. And uh, man, what a journey. You know, we had all been influenced by these great leaders. Randy Alcorn would have been the primary person, but also others like Terry and Ron and Larry, Howard Dayton, this whole group of folks that whose shoulders we were standing on. And so, and there were others. So we started asking them if they would come and talk about that why question to these folks. And then we started telling stories and then we started doing experiences. You've probably been on a jog before, Mm -hmm. uh, Journey of Generosity, which is a 24-hour deal. Um, But it just kind of grew and grew and grew. Todd took you know, eventually took the leadership of generous giving, and and then April was the next, and there was a fellow named Bill Williams in between Daryl and Todd, who has also been instrumental in the generosity movement as well. And yeah, it's been absolutely amazing, and so we've just watched our own lives be transformed uh, in ways that we never have expected. I, you know, we were talking before we went on the air about a jog that I just was doing with Todd Harper at the museum, of the Bible, two weekends ago, and. Every time I go to one of those, I think, you know, and, I, and I'm helping facilitate it, which, you know, I'm the one that I need it. And so, and every time I go, I'm, it is transformational, which just gives you the indication of, of the need that I have. So I've got to, I got to go two or three times a year just to stay even. So that's generous giving. That's how it got started. And that's how it's kind of grown over the years. And uh, it's just been an incredible privilege just to be in a place to just watch God at work, it's just just incredible. Um, did I uh, say anything that disagreed with what Todd probably told you earlier? We'll have to cross-check I, that if, with Todd's yeah, version. You, yeah, cross-check that, and uh, you should count on my version. I'll just say that. You should,
2: you should, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Now, you have a unique perspective because you have been involved with NCF, and generous giving from really the early days. And you talk about this kind of foundational group of uh, Randy Alcorn, Larry Burkett, Ron Blue, who really kind of launched this modern day generosity movement yep. that has really exploded. And you have had really a bird's eye front seat view to watching all this happen, both through NCF and generous giving, which both have been such a, an instrumental framework for watching this grow. I would love to hear your thoughts on what have been some of the most pivotal moments and, and changes over the years that has really let generosity take off like a wildfire. Well, just to kind of set the stage, you mentioned those early guys,
1: Larry and Ron and Howard as examples, and then and then Randy kind of pivoted. They were more into financial and wise use of all resources, Randy kind of pivoted into the generosity with his book "Money, Possessions, and Eternity," and then the treasure principle and others, and and so that 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 pivot was really that was the dividing line. That's when really everything changed from a generosity standpoint. So, Randy is he is the father of generosity from my perspective. And uh, we all sit at his feet. We still do. And you'd have to put Greg Sperry in there as well. He's been a behind the scenes leader in so many different ways. But you're right. Uh, Some of the things that um, I guess that that have been pivotal, why has it exploded like this? I'd say primarily it's the influence on the lives of the generous givers. And then their peer influence has probably been the number one thing because, I mean, generosity is contagious. I mean, People are transformed. And what we really did, we didn't realize, is that there's this extraordinarily large group of people, and two of them I'm looking at right now, that actually have the gift of giving, the spiritual gift of giving. And the church was not—you know, they're great with the gift of evangelism or hospitality or administration, but with the gift of giving, the only thing the church does is ask you to give and put a dollar in a plate. And so we started basically— encouraging people that had the gift of giving. And the gift of giving is for the edification of the body. And so these folks that were being transformed, they were like giving evangelists. It just started spreading peer to, peer to peer to peer to peer. So we really didn't have that much to do with it. And we just like kicked off a few things. And then all these peers started challenging all their friends. And then their friend would have the gift of giving and think, oh, my goodness. This, so this is how I use this spiritual gift? Now, they weren't really thinking like that, but that's what was actually happening and when spiritual gifts are used to build up the body they they explode they grow and expand in inexplicable ways and that's kind of really the main catalyst um, i mean there's a lot of other things that have happened as well you know the movement has gone global now and so you've probably heard of trust bridge global so now we're starting ncfs all over the world which is just multiplying these folks that are that are catching these message and they have the, the same spiritual gift and their generosity. Once they understand that why message, they they start giving. Well, let's, I'll say this: when you when you grow in the how and the where, your giving will grow arithmetically. You you'll feel better about. It. You'll be more strategic. And but when you get the why question, your giving can grow exponentially. It's multiple, and it's 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 just the way it works. That's the way God designed us. When we experience His grace and His generosity, and we. Are blessed and trusted with much. It just—it's just what happens, and it's just fun to watch. It just—just just goes. There are some other things that have been a part of it. I think on the where side, for example, the expansion of the church has been just unbelievable. That's kind of coincided with the generosity explosion. It's not a surprise. Uh, Aslan is on the move both in the generosity movement and with the gospel going around the world, uh, so the global nature of it. And there's more organizations that have come on. And now, and we were talking about this earlier, uh, Cody and I were at a generosity prayer gathering a couple of months ago. <laughs> I didn't. I hardly knew anybody that was even there. There are all these young folks, and, and all of those folks, they would say that they're in the generosity movement. That's their ministry. Well, there just wasn't such a thing. You know, 20, 25 years ago. It would have been a very small prayer gathering, Cody, at that point, back then. <laughs> <laughs> very small. But, I mean, you were there, and the it was amazing. I mean, I was overwhelmed uh, just sitting in the room, realizing that God is taking this everywhere. And, uh, yeah, kind of get a little excited about that.
0: I guess you can tell. It was definitely an encouraging thing. I, I kind of felt like the new kid. At school, but uh, surrounded by some incredible people, I got to hear some stories. And that's what really keeps us going. Just like you said, attending a jog a couple times a year just to keep you level. I mean, that's really, we're all living that out alongside each other, and that community helps so much. And one of the ways that we've learned to create a framework to hold us accountable to our own desire to obey God and yeah. to be generous is setting a financial finish line. That's really where the name of this podcast came from. Uh, so I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the power of financial finish lines. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Just before I say that, it just, you know, I just want to make, you know, that today in the generosity movement, there are actually people who have podcasts about <laughs> generosity. it <laughs> It's, it's a new thing. Uh, that sounds so, like a good idea. It's a, it's, but I'm just it's, – yeah, it's overwhelming. The whole, the whole thing is just overwhelming. So thank you. I just want to say thank you to you guys for being a part of that movement. And you're going to take it places that us old folks never even would have imagined. Finish lines. Oh, this is so important. You know, One of the things that we uh, share with folks is that uh, there's, there's a lot of different kinds of finish lines. First of all, you, if you're not well-planned, you will give less and you will give less wisely. And if you're well-planned, you will give more, and you will give more wisely. Part of the planning process are finish lines. And the finish lines can be all sorts of things. The two primary finish lines that we interact with is what I would call a lifestyle finish line, and then there's a lifetime finish line. And this is an issue for even people that are entrusted with much, that are very wealthy. They should have both a lifestyle and a lifetime finish line. And of course, the lifestyle finish line is what Howard, Larry, and Ron would say is a a budget. (laughs) Uh, So it's, uh, and, and setting parameters that deal with the growth of that budget, that it's, it has a limitation to it. It's different for everybody, and there's different seasons in life where it's different. We are about two years away from finishing paying for college for seven children. <laughs> <laughs> and so the concept of a finish line is about to become a massive reality for us. And it already has been. As each one has gone out, our finish line is allowing us to give more and more and more and more. That's the lifestyle finish line. The lifetime finish line is, a, is essentially a cap on what I would call your investable assets, so business interests are a little bit different, and I'll talk about that in just a second, but it, it would be your savings. There's, you should put a lifetime cap on your savings or on those assets that you could liquidate and spend at any moment, and folks that do that are liberated. It's it's actually a liberating thing to set those finish lines. I know that you guys, you're the experts on this. I'm just talking about it, but it makes a huge difference, and it also makes a huge difference in the lives of families when you do that because it limits some of the risks of 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 basically preserving more wealth than you should so that's a little bit about finish lines also there are finish lines with regards to what you're going to pass on to the next generations or generation that's another really important finish line to process and there's also the issue of for a lot of folks that we work with they're business owners they're they have a lot of their net worth in their businesses, and that's a little trickier, frankly, to deal with. One of the things that NCF does help people do is give away percentages of their business and also continue to steward those businesses. Ownership is an illusion, right? I mean, God is the owner. We aren't the owners. We're like a trustee. And so – and you know, you've know, you seen the, the video with Alan and Catherine Barnhart at the JOG where Catherine says – It's just that our financial situation is now completely aligned with our spiritual situation. I don't remember how she says it a lot better than that. And she's absolutely right. And their decision was that they would give away all of their business interests. I mean, they still have savings, you know, retirement savings and things, that other finish line issue. And frankly, they struggle a little bit with that. Catherine doesn't, but Alan does, or maybe it's vice versa, but... uh, but the finish line also now, because of the ability to give away business interest, you can actually set a finish line and give your business away but still continue to steward it even though you don't own it. So, it, it's, so you can tell it's, there's a little complexity here, and that's why we have professional advisors, right?
2: So they can help people process through that. But those are some thoughts on finish lines. And that's actually – I've never heard that concept of a finish line within business ownership, but that is a great point. And I love that concept. We've talked about fractional interest giving, basically giving pieces of your business away. But I love that idea of in the same way that you would in your personal finances, basically figuring out where that where that boundary is and and then how to slowly give that away over time in a way that makes sense and is aligned with, like you said, your your spiritual interest and understanding of of ownership. Now, you said something that I wanted to come back to about uh, a liberation or freedom that comes from finish lines. And uh, now we talk about finish lines all the time. And I know that there are many people who as soon as they hear the idea of some kind of a spending cap or a net worth cap or anything along those lines as that's a limitation. And how can that be freeing? And I'd love to just hear you dive a little bit deeper into how that's actually liberating.
1: Well, as I mentioned before, we're trustees. We're not owners. And so when we when we start to act like we're the trustor, the trustee and the beneficiary, which is what happens when you don't have any parameters. So the trust agreement determines, you know, the compensation of the trustee essentially. And so if a trustee starts to get confused about their role, and they don't have any parameters around how they're dealing with their with whatever it is that they're stewarding the stuff will actually own them as opposed to them stewarding the stuff it's just it just happens to us i mean it's happened to all of us i mean right i mean and so that's why it's liberating to have governors in our lives things that help us make sure that we don't either harm ourselves or harm others. And one of the reasons for having a finish line from a a lifetime finish line standpoint is, is there really is almost an unlimited amount of wealth you can pass on for someone to steward, but for someone to own, it's like fire. And so if it's in the fireplace, all is good. But if it's in your lap, it's a big problem. And so most people that are business owners, they are, they're pretty good managers of stuff for the most part. Those that are coming behind them are likely to not be as good of managers as they have been with the wealth that they have created. Now, those that come behind them, we actually want to equip them to be wealth generators. We're not trying to minimize the creation of wealth. We want to maximize the creation of wealth. We just want to put governors around that so that we can be healthy with those things. It's, it's, it's true of everything in our lives.
0: Well, David, you're involved with the Impact Foundation as well, which has really advanced the field of uh, investing through the lens of having a positive impact on the world. Can you just give us a picture of what is impact investing and in what context might you be interested in that?
1: So it's two different things, the Impact Foundation and Impact Invest. So the Impact Foundation, its it's genius is that it allows you to take charitable dollars, like dollars that are in a private foundation or in a donor-advised fund, and use those dollars to invest in for-profit kingdom-building businesses, which is really smart because using after-deduction dollars increases the return potential of the investment. Okay, so that's the Impact Foundation. So, impact investing is a broader thing. That's impact investing is what the Impact Foundation will use your charitable dollars to invest in. And impact investing in the Christian circles is kind of a new thing. And impact investing is just simply investing in businesses that are going to make an impact. And there's both secular and faith-aligned impact investing environments. But mostly you're talking about social impact, environmental impact. But in our world, there's a spiritual integration aspect to the impact investing that we deal with. You know, the folks at uh, Sovereign's Capital say that uh, all investing is impact investing. In other words, every company has some form of impact that it's having just beyond the actual sale of its product or the offering that it's putting in front of a customer. And I completely concur with that.
2: Are there any good examples of impact investing that come to mind uh, where you have seen that play out in a way that just really has a, a lot of impact on, on all fronts? You're going to get me in trouble with that question because
1: I'm going to say off the top of my mind. But there's, it's an incredible growing environment. So I'm going to give you some samples of those that are really, really excelling at this. So I mentioned Sovereign's Capital. They're one of the early early folks into this, and they are just crushing it. But there's Eventide, there's Crossmark Global. I don't know if you've talked to Bob Dahl on the podcast. You should. There's Vidant, which is really extraordinary. There's a group in Dallas uh, called the Ambassadors Impact Network. And there's some kind of uh, uh, groups that are helping the world of impact investing. Last weekend, I was at the Lion's Den in Birmingham, Alabama. There were close to 500 people that were there. And its purpose is to expose believers – Uh, many of whom are accredited investors with the world of businesses, mission and impact investing. There's also the faith driven investor. So if you want to learn more about that, you can probably have to rewind because I said that so fast, but uh, those are just uh, some samples. Talenton's another one that does some great work in Africa. Okay. I'm going to stop because I'm, I'm going to get in trouble. Somebody I'm going to get in trouble because you asked me that question. But uh, (laughs) if you really want to kind of get like a primer, Uh, go to the Impact Foundation's website and it kind of gives you it answers your question, but probably a lot better than I just attempted to do so. I think it's impactfoundation.org is their website.
0: So, well, David, this is something that Keelan and I have uh, kind of talked about over the past couple of years, and maybe the Impact Foundation uh, provides a solution in this area. But uh, my question is. We are stewards of all of the dollars that end up in our control, whether it's through income, inheritance, uh, regardless of how it comes to us. We're responsible for what happens to it, and we have some control over that. And some of it might be given, some of it might be invested, but there seems to be a, a difference between having it in a retirement account in my name versus giving it to an organization or an individual who will take over ownership and control. Do you think that impact investing could have an effect on money that would otherwise be given?
1: Absolutely. Impact investing, I believe, is increasing the amount of grant making that's going on. It used to be that your grant making was over here and your investing was over here. So you bifurcated your life from a steward standpoint. When you can bring that together It actually multiplies your your joy in being a steward, and so it actually causes you to want to increase your level of stewardship. So impact investing, I believe, is increasing and even also probably increasing the strategic nature of grant making that's going on it's it's a little easier for the impact investing world to speak in terms that are more business oriented so it feels more strategic so i think it's upping the game of charities as well so they're becoming much more sophisticated in how they share uh, what they're doing and there are just there are some things that you can you can give to essentially that's an impact investment which is doing missional work um, but there are some things that you can't invest in. You have to make grants to them. I- impact investing isn't an option. Of course, your local church is the first and most important one on the list. Um, but anything that we can do to become more—it's it's really a matter of integrity, meaning that it all fits together. It's integral, and uh, so when when that happens, it your whole game gets raised up. It doesn't—it doesn't diminish. It's not like. You're using some money for impact investing, so you're not granting as much as you used to. I don't I don't see that happening at all. I think it's the opposite of that.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, it really seems to have a synergistic effect where it is, yes. like you said, yes. multiplying your ability to give and, and also aligning everything into one uniform direction. Now, you, you mentioned this a little bit. So there are some causes that uh, can really only be affected through granting. And I'm sure this is also kind of said with a grain of salt, because this is probably also always a fluid thing. Organizations are changing the rules all the time. But uh, for the sake of the question, some causes that are primarily tackled through grant making, others that lend themselves very well to investing, uh, like housing or job creation or other kind of social causes like that. Do you think with a emphasis on impact investing that it uh, detrimentally affects the causes that are primarily tackled through grant making or do you not really see that happening at all? I don't see that at all. Yeah, it's
1: just a, it it's not certainly our experience in the in the National Christian Foundation world and we have a pretty somewhat critical mass of folks that are a lot of the impact investing at like at the impact foundation comes from grants from the National Christian Foundation but we don't see the grant making of those that are doing impact investing diminish it's just it just isn't it's just not going to work like that one of the great things that's happening though that impact investing and those entities that I shared with you earlier that are helping that marketplace of impact investing it is definitely causing business owners to take another look at their businesses and asking themselves the question how am i integrating my spiritual life into my business
2: mm-hmm. and
1: that is that's the way it should be right i mean that you know, all investing is impact investing so what kind of impact are you having and so it's raising the bar on all these businesses so actually it's just another way that god is moving in new ways to take his gospel to the ends of the earth. It's just an. It's just another way. It's not one is better than the other or one should substitute for the other. It's an additional thing that's happening.
0: Yeah, and speaking of that, uh, one of the things that God taught us through this podcast and just interviewing some incredible people with new perspectives that we had never heard before is there's a broader finish line than our personal financial finish lines, and that's the completion of the Great Commission. How have you seen over time that this explosion of generosity has lended itself toward supporting activities that are accelerating the completion of the Great Commission? Well, it's kind of like a chicken and the egg.
1: I'm not sure which one's – it's it's a circular thing that's going on. As I mentioned, Aslan is on the move in incredible, breathtaking ways, which is attracting giving capital which is allowing the gospel to go out more which is attracting more giving capital and even impact investing capital and it's just feeding off itself it's creating a i would call a revival or a reformation of both generosity and the gospel going out it's it's amazing what's happening and we could if you want to talk a little bit about what's happening I I'd love to talk about yeah. that but Yeah, please do. I'm sure you may have covered this before but in the in the world of grant making you know, there are several environments that, that are just, it's just jaw-dropping what's going on around the world. And it's really hard for us to, to kind of feel this because we sense in our own Western mind that things are going downhill. It's uh-huh. just simply not true. It's not even close to true. It's a facade. We need to get off social media and start reading the Bible and and talking to the folks that are doing the work out in the field because the gospel is just absolutely exploding. And I mean, there's infinite examples you know what the what Modi's doing in India is just exploding the gospel across the country of India because he's 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 persecuting christians well you, you can't win against the gospel it is going to go out and it's going to continue to accelerate no matter what the gates of hell will not prevail against the movement of the gospel and the church it just isn't going to happen and so the more people try the more god uses it to grow his kingdom. And so we don't like that kind of stuff to happen, but that's what's happening. You know about the all-access goals for Scripture translation. You know, 95% we want to have the full Bible. There's a little over 7,000 languages, and 9996 have a New Testament. I don't know why they don't say 100%, but they don't. They, so there's some, there's some small language somewhere, I guess, that they don't think is going to get the New Testament. And 100% of languages will have a meaningful portion of Scripture by 2033. And that's kind of getting a little, it's getting a little tough, but now artificial intelligence has just come on the scene in the last several years. What a surprise. No, Uh it's not a surprise. It's a part of what's happening. God is going to bring his word to every language. There's just no doubt about it. And so watching the collective impact of these scripture translation organizations that are accelerating the completion of that part of the Great Commission – It's absolutely amazing. So the other one is the world of unengaged people groups in the world. And so there's unengaged people groups and there's unreached people groups and there's reached people groups. There's about – people have different numbers. I think it's about 12,000 total people groups in the world. It's not – when the Bible talks about nations, it's actually talking about these people groups. And let's see, in 2005, there were about 3,500 people unengaged people groups, meaning they had no access to the Bible. Nobody had ever gone to them before. They had never heard. And there wasn't anybody that was uh, available to share the gospel with them, 3,500. We are under 100 today. Under 100. There are probably less than 60 that are kind of unclaimed. We are so close to the finish. Now, I will tell you, some of these remaining groups, though, they're bears. I mean, they are tough. It's going to be we're, we're you know the rubbers meeting the road now, so it's getting really hard. But the acceleration of it and the people's understanding that we're getting this close, it's absolutely amazing. And so I don't remember what the number of people w- were back in 2005. The 3,500 people groups. The list used to be 100,000 and above population. Today the list is any number. So there's less than a hundred on that list left, and. Uh, uh, Paul Eshelman was one of the leaders of this whole movement. He's gone to heaven now, but I know he's up there just going crazy because of how close it's getting. But at the same time, we now need to look at the unreached people, and those are those are people groups that the gospel has penetrated their people group. But many, many, many people in those people groups have never heard the name of Jesus. Some estimate it to be 3 billion people in that group. So now we've got to start going after these more, I would say, geographic areas. And basically, the goal is to plant a church in every neighborhood, everywhere. And after watching what's happened with the scripture translation stuff, I have no doubt whatsoever that this church planting movement is going to do that. So we're on the verge of some extraordinary things that are happening right now. And we know that when the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, the end the end will come, and we are right there. And so, yeah, kind of get a little little overwhelmed with that. But I mean, if if ever there was a time to get her done, now is it? I mean, we are (laughs) right there. These are kind of closed in funds. So if you want to meet somebody in heaven that has never had God's word in their native language. You better get on it right now mm-hmm. uh, because we're running out of these languages. If you want to meet a people group, somebody from a people group that's going to walk up and say, you know, before the missionary came that you were a part of supporting or their organization, no one had ever heard the name of Jesus in our entire people group ever. You better get on it because we're running out. Those are are going to go away. And I, I, I promise you, when you get on the other side, you're going to want to meet people that are going to walk up and say, well, you come over to my house for dinner. That's what it says in Luke 16, 9. They're going to invite mm-hmm. you over for dinner. And whatever kind of food they're cooking, you're going to like it when you get in heaven. You might not like it on earth, but when, when you get in heaven, you're going to like whatever it is they're cooking. So you want to win as many friends as possible. That's the goal while we're on this planet. Win as many friends as possible.
2: Yeah. Couldn't have said it better myself. And uh, in regards to what you're talking about, the church planting movement, we have been able to talk to... A number of different leaders in that front and just like illuminations is bringing together the bible translation yes. movement and incredibly accelerated that momentum to this relatively tight time frame we have left to 2033 the uh, church planting movement yes. has started to collaborate and gather all of the data sharing data among yep. ministries which has never been done before about where every village is where every missionary on the field is where every existing church is and that what that looks like to have a church everywhere I think is beginning to really you know take a, a full picture and and it's inevitable you know at, at what point that that work is complete so if anybody thinks
1: of their giving like investing, some people do but some people don't but if you if you, that's the way you think about your giving we are now in an environment where the data and the information i mean it, it's time to jump in now if you've been holding back it's time to go it's time mm-hmm. to go right now
2: yep it absolutely is and it just keeps getting faster and faster now yes. we've we've had the chance to talk about so many incredible things that God is doing right now through the generosity movement over the last 20 years through the work of NCF, generous giving and many other organizations alongside them in the missions world god bringing the word accessible to every people group and language in the really the next decade here church planting what are you most excited about to see in the next 5 or 10 years well from a generosity movement standpoint you guys
1: i mean that that group that Cody we were with in in Chattanooga, I'm overwhelmed by it. It's you guys and it's those other folks that were there at that prayer gathering. The the new era, if you will, of folks that are committed to seeing this continue to accelerate. You know, with let's take the—even even outside the generosity movement, you know, the person that's going to translate the last language is probably in high school right now. I'm excited about that. Wow. I hope they're going to go to Baylor. I, I hope they're going to go to Baylor. But, um, I mean, it's that close. And so, so it's this upcoming generation that's going to be in leadership and primary influence, I believe, when the end comes. They, it's you guys that are going to be the leaders when Christ returns. And I'm pretty excited about that. I probably,
0: I may be dead and gone by then, but uh, yeah. Well, it's hard to top that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, David, we wrap up every episode with what we call our Manager's Minute, and that's just one practical action that our listeners can take to step into their role as stewards and to manage God's wealth wisely. David, do you have any suggestions for our listeners today? Yeah, I should have been thinking more about this.
1: <laughs> you know what? Interestingly enough, one of the things we haven't talked about that I think is super important that anybody can do is spontaneous giving. You know, I'm a planner, obviously, you know, that's what I do, to help people plan wisely. But uh, I I just one of the things that our family does and and our kids actually are doing this themselves now is that when we go to a restaurant, we kind of huddle together at the dinner table. And we start looking around the restaurant without turning our heads to find the family we're going to buy dinner for secretly so that they don't know. And it's just spontaneous giving. There's no deduction and no receipt, but it is it is extremely fun and our kids love it because we see these people go up to try to pay for their meal and they're told, you know, somebody in here has anonymously bought your dinner and they just freak out. They're, they're looking everywhere trying to find okay, who did it? Who do you think did it? And we're very careful to try to not look guilty at all <laughs> when we're sitting. There. So I would just encourage you to just find creative ways, as, especially if you have a family, as a family, to be spontaneously generous in kind of a consistent way. And it will, it will become a very important part of your family. And you will also teach those that are coming behind how much fun it is to be generous.
2: It really is a joyful thing. I love that idea. And I love involving your family with that. I have four little girls and am always just trying to figure out ways that we can loop them into all this experience that we get to be a part of. And it's things exactly like that, where they get to see everything tangibly play out. Obviously, there's such an important role, and we just spent an hour talking about it uh, for strategic giving. Uh, But there's something unique to this kind of spontaneous giving that just really tangibly captures the joy and and how it connects you to other people. Absolutely. Well, David, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, You just have so much experience and wisdom to share in everything that we love to talk about. And it, it has been a real joy to have you with us. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, been a privilege. It's been a lot of fun. Really appreciate you guys.
0: Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we'd love to hear from you. And now a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who's living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we would love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't have to have all the answers, just a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we would be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge through our website at finishlinepledge.com or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Finally, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 86. That's it for today. We'll see you next time.